Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. I am very thrilled today to welcome to our program Jonathan Roberts, the president and co-founder of the Ancient Languages Institute, and his partner in crime, Ryan Hamill, the executive director and co-founder of the Institute. And I discovered, well, Ryan's actively involved on our on our Facebook group, Classical Education. And I first discovered Jonathan through a uh, blog post that he wrote called Classical Schools Are Not Really Classical. And I actually discovered it when I was working at the University of Dallas with Dr. Laura Eight and helping her kind of create her uh, K through four classical Latin curriculum, which is desperately needed. And um, when we read this article, we were jumping for joy because it aligned with Everything that those of us at the University of Dallas espoused to in regards to what is really a classical education, what is the trivium. Um, and I started my, uh, uh, my, this podcast, actually, and my Facebook page with the effort to uh, help parents make educated decisions about classical education. That is why the question across the top of our Facebook group is, What is classical education? And my aim is to point parents, teachers, anyone who wants to know what classical education is to the tradition. And in order to do so, we have to uncover what has happened in the classical education movement in the last 30 years and why it's happened. And uh, in this effort to recover classical education, some stones have been uncovered that reveal uh, there's a lot more to the tr- to the tradition than what many of our classical schools uh, look like today. And I think this is important for parents to make really great decisions about how they want to educate their children. And I've come out with calling it the neoclassical movement versus the classical movement. I've got some podcast episodes on that that my listeners should go back and listen to if they haven't yet. But I think that this article gets to the heart of it. And when I was at UD, we worked on a book about the trivium, uncovered a lot of of the truth about what the trivium is, and it has not been published. UD still owns the book, and I'm trying to actually get the rights back to finish it. But um, many professors loved what we had written, the team of us at UD. And um, so welcome to the show, Ryan and Jonathan. Y'all are on the same page as, as I am, and I'm excited to help our listeners hear from some experts in ancient languages. What is wrong with the trivium in many classical schools today? Because you guys have been very outspoken about this and why the trivium actually matters deeply to how we learn ancient languages. It's a huge conversation. It's very important. And so I, I really want to just start with the trivium, talk about its misconception and why it matters to learning languages. So one of you guys jump in and, and get us started. Sure, sure. Thanks, Thanks for, for uh, 
Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks so much. And yeah, it's. I will say, and this is true. I'm not just trying to flatter you. It's my the classical education group on Facebook. It's my favorite favorite uh, Facebook group. That's why I'm so active on it because it's got. Um, I mean, you've just done a great job, kind of curating both the topics under discussion and the people who are there. It pulls in a lot of people, and um, I really enjoyed that episode with Dr. I of your podcast. That's kind of linked to the Facebook group. So, really thrilled to be here um, and be part of this uh, conversation. Jonathan's the author of that um, friendly provocation, the article you're talking about. So I'll let him uh, maybe kick us off on the trivia. Yeah, <clears throat> well, that article or blog post, um, you know, it's written with some trepidation because we don't want to alienate anyone right. in the classical education movement, right? It's, it's true. Yeah, that's a, the, a, one of the most encouraging things uh, happening in, in education. So we, we, we are, we're allies and friends of, of the movement, uh, but we want to see it kind of grow and develop into the next stage, you know, classical education 2.0 maybe uh, is what right. we want to see. And one of the, um, areas that that I criticize there is how um how the trivium is is dealt with so mainly the trivium as discussed by Dorothy Sayers and Dorothy Sayers does get some some criticisms there and in and um in a podcast that Ryan and I did as well and the main issue is that um Dorothy Sayers talks about the trivium as stages in learning. So she has her own ideas as to how child psychology works. And she's very open. Like, these are these are my own speculations about, you know, child psychology. Um, and, and so, you, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that speculations on child psychology might not necessarily map on to how the trivium has been traditionally conceived of. So Dorothy Sayers conceives it as a stages, you have the grammar stage, and now you see books on the grammar of anything, right? The grammar of history, the grammar of math. And so it's, it's it can be kind of perplexing if you're a newcomer to the conversation, grammar of math? You know, what, what are we talking about here? But once, you're, once you've kind of been inducted to uh, how that works, you, you get the idea. It's the, the basic building blocks of of a particular discipline is how Dorothy Sayers um, thinks of it. And so you're memorizing all sorts of things. She calls it the, what's she, what's she call it? The the, pa the parrot, pole parrot. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, you know, and that's the time to memorize things, um, dates, chants. And so we, we see a lot of schools, right, doing chants for like um, verb endings, right, or declensions. Um, and then you move on to the logic stage, which is about making connections, right, between be, be, between the the data that you've learned. And then once you've kind of mastered the ability to make connections, and she's she's especially interested. So I think this is a, this is important, and I, and I do think this is a, a good thing that motivates her. She sees, and partly because she's a practitioner of marketing, she sees how people kind of get swept up in marketing. Maybe she sees that people read slogans like, 
Guinness is good. And they're like, oh, Guinness good is for good. You. That, <laughs> good for you. She, she right. wrote that one. She was on a Guinness marketing is campaign good for, for you. Guinness. Guinness and is good everybody for you. believed it, right? Wow. And, <laughs> and, I didn't uh, know that she was on a marketing campaign for that. That's amazing. She, she, yeah. was, an ad, she was an ad copywriter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that her experience, so I, you know, I, I said that kind of in tongue in cheek, but I do think that her experience in marketing maybe uh, perhaps yeah gives, gives her some insight into like what's going on it's like oh, people are being deceived people aren't really thinking about what they're consuming uh and so this is part of what motivates her and this is part of her interest in logic she wants people to be able to detect um what's wrong with what's being presented sure. to, to right right so you got the logic stage and then you have the the rhetoric stage and this is like okay so you've got the building blocks you know how to connect some things you know how to analyze certain things and now you learn how to present them in a beautiful and persuasive manner mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so that's the the uh, a quick summary of of how uh, often we think about the the trivium in, in classical education circles well and the schools have set themselves up as stages where you're doing this mm -hmm. Grammar stage in K-5 or, or K-4, and then middle school is logic, high school is rhetoric. And what this does in uh, pedagogy is uh, instruction is my passion, helping teachers know how to teach classically. And what this, the problem with the trivium, the way Dorothy Sayers interpreted it was, or just, it was just a hypothesis. It wasn't even supposed to be implemented as a school. She said that in the beginning. Um, it, it was just an idea, uh, piggybacked on a progressive movement and the problem with it is that then teachers in, say, the grammar school don't realize that little kids can learn the art of rhetoric, right? It, maybe informally, they're not learning formal rhetoric, but they actually are able to learn rhetoric and speaking well, and, and, and they don't even realize it. And if they've got themselves so pigeonholed into this mode of the, the parrot stage where they're just reciting everything back without any living ideas behind it or any beauty behind it or reasons why this idea is worth memorizing, then yeah. these kids are actually lack, it's actually causing a lack of, of beauty in education. So that, that beauty, that element of beauty and the holisticness of a, of a person is gone because now the person has been pigeonholed into these little stages of what they're able to do and what they're not able to do. And I think that's a giant problem with the movement. And, and I've seen its repercussions in the way teachers teach and even the way teachers feel like they can't teach or move on to certain things that the kids really could be doing. Um, and I think this is a huge problem. So I appreciate uh, appreciate your explanation of that. I, and I would like to add to your, your uh, explanation of that, that in your essay or your blog post, what you want to call it classical schools are not really classical, about halfway through you gave like the best definition of grammar, uh, rhetoric and dialectic. And it's from Hugh of St. Victor's Didascalion. Didascalicon. He says, Grammar is the knowledge of how to speak without error. Dialectic is clear-sighted argument which separates true from the false. And rhetoric is the discipline of persuading to every suitable thing. I love that. It's a very concise definition. And it's true to the tradition. And it matters. It matters to how we teach to understand a rightly ordered definition of the trivium. 
So I'm I'm sorry I interrupted. I just get really excited about the trivium. It's, I've been studying it for years, and I love talking about it. Um, yeah, and one thing that comes out in that quote that is central to Jonathan's argument and kind of the overall thrust of where we're going is that rather than see the trivium as stages of learning, uh, these are disciplines. These are uh, areas of knowledge. They're subjects, to use a more kind of contemporary word, um, which is really in contrast. I mean, think about the title of Dorothy Sayers' lecture. Yeah. It's the lost tools of learning. And for her, the raw material of what's learned doesn't matter because she's just trying to prepare kids to um, have the tools to carry on their own learning, whatever they end up being interested in. Um, there's no body of knowledge she's, at least in that lecture, particularly interested in them learning. Um, and so this is why uh, Jonathan makes the point in that essay that um, it's really a, it's a, it's a manifesto of progressive education, even though it is um, presented as kind of anti-progressive, it really is because she's interested in basically critical thinking. Here's the tools students need um, so they can go learn whatever. You know, you could, you could master the tools, Dorothy Sayers' tools of learning so that you can be a good Marxist historian. Um, I don't think that's what classical educators are interested in training is like Marxist historiography, but her whole approach is agnostic to what it is uh, you're interested in doing. So um, that's when you go back to uh, kind of <laughs> medieval rhetoricians and pedagogues, what you find is when they're talking about the trivium, they're talking about disciplines, about bodies of knowledge, things that must be learned. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, do you have any more to say? Yeah, I think that that's, that's uh, very true. Thinking about methods versus bodies of knowledge. Um, and and one, one thing that's interesting, uh, one, one challenge that occurs when you just think about it in terms of methods, and may, maybe you've seen this more than we have, these discussions of, does this really belong in the grammar stage? It seems to involve the use of reason. <laughs> um, and so then teachers are having to like really figure out where does this fit in? And it's not like there isn't a progression in learning things. Like there's actually, it actually really does make sense. Like you need to know some of the basics, right? Some of what we I've been calling the building blocks. You do need to learn how to make these connections um, and how wonderful is it if you can also learn how to present it in a way that's compelling? That's all really nice and great. Uh, but does it really need to be like, well, first through third grade grammar stage? You know, does it does it really need to be structured in that way? Most likely not. <laughs> you can you even if you if you accept that paradigm, you you can you're probably gonna be wanting to do all three. Um and uh, and more rapid uh, succession. I agree. H how does how does this influence the teaching of Latin? It, so take us through what you've seen are the problems in 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 ancient language education, and then bring us around to uh, the heart of the 
the tradition. Traditionally, uh, what is the main goal of learning Latin and Greek? So take us through those those two things. Sure. Yeah. So this really gets to the origin story of ALI, uh, of what we're doing at Ancient Language Institute. Um, because we started it in 2019 in order to address the kind of bad pedagogy around ancient language instruction. And so we were, you know, a very humble outfit back in 2019. Um, it was just, I was kind of basically part-time doing some admin. Aunt Jonathan was teaching like a dozen Latin students, and that was the Ancient Language Institute when we got started. Um, we're now a lot bigger, and we're doing Greek, Hebrew, and Old English as well. Uh, and we have an incredible roster of teachers. So a lot has happened since, but when we got started, it was to yeah deal with the grammar translation method, which is generally how ancient languages are taught across the spectrum. Um, but then the classical education movement has kind of reified that grammar translation method because it sounds like that's what Dorothy Sayers wants. And so uh, that's what we should be doing, which is memorize the verb forms and the declensions. Then that's the kind of grammar part. And then the translation is you get a short little selection from something hard, like a primary source in the language. And then you have a dictionary and you look up the vocab that you don't know. And then you look at the endings and you go through the endings in your head and then you translate it into English. And then it's like, look, I just translated Livy. <laughs> Did you really read Livy? Do you understand what Livy's saying? Like you only really understand him once you've translated into English. And so you're really reading English. You're just decoding Latin. Um, that's the way ancient languages tend to be taught. Um, and there's, I think, because depending on where it is, in some places, because that's just the way it's always been done, what other way could there be? Um, but then there's an ideological backing to it in the classical education movement because of Dorothy Sayers. And so we wanted to fix that. Um, and just to fast forward, and we, we can rewind and go back, but just to fast forward, when we started the ALI, we were really focused on methodology. We want to um, introduce the teaching of the ancient languages according to a kind of natural or direct method where we're treating the languages as languages. Um, you speak it, you read at length, you start with easy stuff, and you build slowly um, in a progression. But we found, because of some of the ideological stuff I mentioned, that our argument for a natural or direct method, there's a lot of different jargon. Um, we tend to use direct methods, so I'll stick with that. In, in arguing for the direct method, we found that we had to make a bigger argument, a humanistic one. Um, because to argue for the direct method, we said, well, don't you want to be reading the sources? Isn't that the whole point? And, well, that's an assumption that we had, which obviously that's what you want to do, but not everyone necessarily agreed. Some people wanted to study Latin because it helped with English etymology. And so then we had to make the argument that the point of learning the ancient languages is to read ancient texts. Why should you do that? And that's 
that really took us to a new stage in ALI. Uh, we're still very focused on methodology, on making these languages learnable and teachable, but we're also thinking um, about the tradition, like you said. Uh, why are we, why do we care? Why do we care about Virgil? Why do we care about Livy uh, or any of these people? Yeah, and I think that that kind of leads to a contrast where you see, um, and in a lot of you know classical education literature discussions about you know why why learn Latin, and you see things like, well, it's so great for you know getting good at English, right? Your English grammar is going to improve, and that's not that's not false. You also see, uh, I don't know if you see, you don't see this as much because the SAT is is going away, <laughs> but you you would even see things like. It's great for SAT scores, right? People who who take these ancient languages do better at standardized tests. And it's like, well, should we really care about that? Should we really care about standardized tests? Uh, probably not. <laughs> um, and and this also comes from Dorothy Sayers. I I think I don't want to I don't want to you know be be too harsh if if it's not necessary, but. It, if I remember correctly, she says something like, learning Latin makes learning everything else half as fast. Like you can go twice the speed, right? If you know Latin, um, oh, that it were true. Um, that yeah. would be really <laughs> nice. I would like that a lot. Uh, and, so, and so you have all of these goals uh, for learning Latin. Some of them, you know, some of them are true. It's, it's some really nice byproducts that you would get. But not, you don't see the strong emphasis on, no, you should learn Latin because there is gold there mm -hmm. waiting for you to, to enjoy and to feed your soul and to challenge your you know, the assumptions that you make because you're you know, a 21st century human being that does not farm, <laughs> you know, that's living in a totally different world. Um, <clears throat> It's good for you and and all of these other ways. And uh, and and yeah, it's just that that lack of emphasis on the great texts that you can uh, that we can enjoy in their original languages is um it's kind of it's kind of sad because it's there's so much good stuff. yeah, I want to say something here about uh connecting that to the critical thinking stuff and the like tools for learning. Um, this is a point that a friend of mine, very good friend of mine, Colin Redimer, who's also a friend of Ancient Language Institute. He's the vice president of the Davenant Institute. And we work really closely with them. Uh, if your listeners are um, Protestants interested in theology, they have to they have to check out Davenant. Uh, and even if they're not just interested in if they're just interested in theology, um, generally, they're worth checking out. But he's he's also a professor in a great books program in California. And he's I've talked a lot with him about the kind of canon wars. Like mm -hmm. what what books should be mm -hmm. included? What books should we take out? Um, right. And critical his argument, and I think he's written an essay about this, but I can't remember it, or else I would um, tell you that where where it appears. But 
his argument is that critical thinking as a concept and like as a learning goal really arose uh, as a truce in the canon wars because you had the kind of partisans of Homer, don't take out Homer and, you know, just what you think of as like the traditional texts. And you had the people who wanted to really update and overhaul and even destroy Western Civ. We got to um, do a complete overhaul. And that war was, you know, it, it was the Trojan War um, in higher in higher ed. And they had to eventually reach a truce. And the truce was, let's be agnostic about the canon. Like, nobody, nobody's going to force the... Uh, France Fanon, and no one's going to force Homer. We're just going to like shadow box and say, it doesn't matter which text in particular you read. It's just going to be about developing critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's almost an act of cowardice to pivot to these kind of instrumental uh, arguments for curriculum decisions instead of facing head on the question of which books do we read? Which ones are better? It's like right. people are scared of that argument. This is better than that. Why? Making right. that argument is actually hard. You have to really know those texts and be really familiar with them in order to make the judgment that it is more worth our time to read this instead of that. That's a good point. That's a good point. One of the other things that I thought was interesting in your essay was um, this idea of beauty first. So I think when I, what I've seen in my years of working with schools is that beauty has been missing significantly in many ways, not only aesthetically, but in the way we are teaching, right? And our understanding of beauty and not actually wanting to approach the truth of beauty, of what beauty really actually is, that, that it's not in the eye of the beholder. There is actually an objective truth behind beauty. And so because of that, I think we've, we have a lot of uh, schools that have not implemented the transcendentals well, right? So they're so focused on the truth, sort mm -hmm. of focused on goodness, but beauty is kind of this other thing that's, we don't really talk about it. But when we're trying to get teach uh, parents to enroll their kids in our school, of course, we tell them uh, all of this is based on truth, goodness, and beauty, right? Well, how we teach Latin and why we teach Latin has a lot to do with beauty as well. And what I see in your essay is that one of the big reasons for learning Latin in this holistic way is because you're you're approaching Latin because you believe and know that it's beautiful and that beauty matters and allowing that beauty to come into you as a person is going to help transform your soul to be a virtuous person. So if you want to talk about we do virtuous education, well, then we have to go all the way back to why are we teaching Latin and why does it matter and why does beauty matter? Because that's how we get transformed. And so if you remember in the essay, uh, you, you, you kind of quoted from the symposium. Uh, I don't know if you have it in front of you and you want to read it or I could read it. You can, you can read it. I don't, I don't have it. Uh, yeah, 
so you kind of, you started off saying the true lover of the classical tradition, the lover of Plato, realizes that the goal of language learning is not to translate words from Greek or Latin into English. To do so is to be standing at a, re at a remove. Rather, we want to ascend through words to the very meaning they can convey. And you go on to quote from the symposium, um, describing an experience in the discussion of the form of beauty. And you say, you, the quote from symposium, it will not appear to him as one idea or one kind of knowledge. It is not anywhere in another thing as in an animal or in earth or in heaven or in anything else, but itself, by itself, with itself. It is always one in form and all the other beautiful things share in that. This is what is to go aright or be led by another into the mystery of love. One goes always upwards for the sake of this beauty, starting out from beautiful things and using them like rising stairs. From one body to two and from two to all beautiful bodies, then from beautiful bodies to beautiful customs and from customs to learning beautiful things. And from these lessons, he arrives in the end at this lesson, which is learning of this very beauty so that in the end, he comes to know just what it is to be beautiful. So, so explain on that, how that matters to Latin or Greek well, or any of these languages for that matter. Well, it's, uh, you know, we're trying to follow in the, the tradition of Christian Platonism and taking some very naughty passages from Plato and using them for more orthodox means, because uh, there's some there's some strategic ellipses in that quotation because that's uh, that's in a symposium. Uh, so readers can go read it if they want to, um, but uh, the thing that opens that essay and that this. Mm -hmm. This bit from the symposium is kind of where we kind of put put it in there to kind of comment on the very opening, which is this long passage from Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis's memoir, when he talks about his school days and learning to read Greek. And um, it's a it's a really interesting passage from the point point of view of language learning, but the part that connects to the symposium really directly is that uh, Lewis says, you're not really reading Greek when you're hunting for the word nous in a lexicon, um, because nous doesn't mean ship. Nous and ship both refer to a sleek wooden body pushing through the waves. Um, and you're not so when his phrase is uh, the officious English word intruding. If the officious English word is intruding when you're reading Homer and you read the word nous, well, you're you're still at a remove. Um, mm -hmm. You need to see the word nous and then be there with Homer as the Greek ships plow through the waves on their way to go burn down Troy, um, mm -hmm. and. That's what language instruction and language teachers should be helping their students do, is ascend the ladder of love, as uh, Diotima says in the symposium, and behold, behold the ships, or whatever it is that's being discussed. I don't know, what do you think, Jonathan? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, 
were just mentioned that I, I think were really spot on. One of the things that I haven't really thought of as much as I would like is this emphasis on reason, because you do see that. And and it is an it is an emphasis in Sayers' essay. And in fact, the whole um the whole thing behind it is how do we train folks so that they can use their reason carefully and appropriately and avoid being deceived. And in contrast to that, um, Ryan and I ha have been reading Richard Gamble's anthology, The Great Tradition, which is a really great text that I, I would commend to anyone um, interested in and getting a broader kind of understanding of the um, history of, you know, Reflections on education. It's, it's just a really, really great resource. But one of the things that you see in these authors is the discussion of the development of taste. And I mean, you know, <laughs> saying something like that today, right? It's like, wow, how elitist. You <laughs> know, developing taste is like, oh. And and you know, today you hear a lot of people being kind of suspicious and and scornful at the idea of like high culture and low culture. What a what a elitist thing to even consider. Um, but if you if you want to really appreciate beautiful things, you're gonna have to develop a taste for them. It doesn't necessarily come automatically because it's uh, some of these things are complex, have different pieces. Um, and <clears throat> kind of going back to the language learning stuff is um, poetry, right? Some of the greatest poetry ever written is not in English. It's in Latin and in Greek. There's some amazing things right. in English. Uh, but if you, if you, what a great way to develop taste is to read some of the most beautiful things ever written. And they're meant to be heard in a particular way, right? You're supposed to hear arma virum quecano, right? And, or, or the Odyssey. And, you know, the rhythm, the sounds, it's all really intentional. And, um, and I think we, we just miss out if we, you know, if we don't, if we don't learn to enjoy them as they were, as they were meant to be enjoyed. And it's not, and it's not the meaning thing. Sometimes, um, languages get pitched um, in this way. It's like, well, you can't really translate. You know, the languages, the as if languages themselves held you know, completely different ways of looking at the world. Well, that that's a little bit of uh, oh, that's a little bit overblown. You can translate, right? Meaning can be conveyed. It's been done. <laughs> you know, you can get really good translations of things. But what you can't get is that same enjoyment, uh, for instance, of poetry. You it's a different sound scheme. You're hearing different sounds, and it's just not the same. And and yes, they do sometimes you do miss out on the meaning of things. So with translations of the Aeneid, for instance, it's very important. Pius Aeneas. Right, you hear pious Aeneas, and the, the the term piety right conveys a lot of things. Uh, uh, you know, there's a set, a core set of ideas that's connected with that. Um, and in English, you see things like noble Aeneas, good Aeneas, 
and you kind of miss the whole web of of ideas that um, when you then you translate using different terms. Um, so yeah, you do miss on on the ideas, but you certainly are missing out on the taste that you could be developing. And yeah, I think sorry, I think that where the rubber really meets the road is because you mentioned truth, goodness, beauty. Um, and where the rubber really meets the road for that is humanism. And I've used this word a few times, and I think that word, and we use it liberally, um, and we've gotten pushback because of the associations with like the attempt to create a kind of secular humanist uh, morality that will replace Christianity, and it's not really what we mean. Um, we're we're trying to use it historically, but also um, kind of opening it up for possible new directions. Um, and when I say historically, what I mean is the Renaissance humanists, um, who were the ones who really, really believed that the study of ancient literature could create, uh, could build virtue in people. Um, and for them, the so Petrarch is kind of the shining light of this of this attempt. And for them, the kind of the high text, the one that unlocked all of this was Cicero's Parcia Poeta, um, which uh, I think is it's it's a real masterpiece um, because you hear this objection and it's a good objection. Uh, is like, well, you know, does reading, how, how can reading fiction really make you a better person? Like Jeff Bezos is a famous lover of Tolkien. Um, and he's basically created the, uh, like internet business version of Mordor. <laughs> how can, how can a fan of, uh, of Tolkien go on to do that. Clearly, reading Tolkien doesn't make you a good person. Um, and so because there's a there's a there's a danger of kind of overdoing the humanist case. Like if we just read Homer and Virgil and all these people, we're just gonna create saints. Um, and when put like that, I, don't, I think everyone would be like, well, I, I don't know. So what what's like the middle ground? Um, and Parochia Poeta, I just want to read a little bit. Um, Cicero anticipates this, and um, he has an answer. So first, his like his like big strong statement when he's arguing for for the study of the classics. And keep in mind, I mean, Cicero is we number him among the classics. He's talking to his contemporaries about the older classics, um, and he says about them, "How many pictures of high endeavor?" the great authors of Greece and Rome have drawn for our use and bequeathed to us, not only for our contemplation, but for our emulation. Uh, and so this is, this is part of the argument is you read this stuff and you're going to want to copy Alexander the Great. Um, but an objector may ask, were these great men whose virtues are perpetuated in literature, like Alexander, themselves adepts in the learning which you describe in such fulsome terms and so he says 
Yeah, you know, by and large, these virtues are not inculcated or created in these men through literature. Um, that they're kind of natural endowment and what they learned at home was more important. Yes. Yet, I do at the same time assert that when to a lofty and brilliant character is applied the molding influence of abstract studies, the result is often inscrutably and unapproachably noble. Such a character our fathers were privileged to behold in the divine figure of Scipio Africanus, and he named some other people. And so the point there is, you know, literary study is not going to replace the like good breeding and upbringing uh, that is necessary for virtue. But when you have you when you have virtue in potency, and you add uh, liberal studies to it, then you get something really remarkable. Um, and I think you see this even in modern history. Um, you see it with someone like Charles de Gaulle. I just finished uh, listening to this massive biography of Charles de Gaulle. Um, came from a great family, very pious. Um, and yet, Charles de Gaulle was... So he, he, he was kind of like, he was set to be a good guy. But this man, uh, from a very young age, was just obsessed with literature. He was like getting bad grades because he was spending all of his time reading classical French poetry as like a middle schooler. Um, and he rose to become one of the great statesmen of the modern world. Um, Churchill, similar. Even someone who basically never went to school, Abraham Lincoln, um, he, he was incurably bookish, um, obsessed with Shakespeare, always reading the Bible. Um, and Plutarch. Yep. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Plutarch. And Plutarch is another argument I have for, you know, classical schools should be reading Plutarch. And why would you call yourself classical and not be reading Plutarch? I don't understand. I have Required a whole podcast reading. on that. Required reading. <laughs> yep. Yeah. One yeah. of the, yeah, the, that's a great oration. Um, poeta that I, I think should be required reading for uh, anyone interested in, in classical education and it's it's kind of it's kind of funny because it's it's a legal oration and sister is so confident in his and and he has a really easy case to make the legal part of the speech is really short and then it's basically a defense of why studying literature is is worth is is, is beneficial to the common good and he uh the way that he talks about it isn't really study right he this is like what he does in his free time and, and he says look people are going to the festive days people are doing are, are playing ball if if they're allowed to do that without being reproached i should be allowed to you know read my books right um because i also draw from them and they help me basically basically says they help me help you um, and, uh, it's, it's such a, yeah, such a, such a fun, um, speech to, to consider in, in these, these conversations, how models of the past can help us understand, you know, what is, what is possible, mm -hmm. um, and help, help inspire us. 
Uh, but what's one thing that's really interesting, and I think is connected to some of the things that you've said, is that Cicero re really, in some ways, why is he reading these works? Well, because he enjoys them, <laughs> right? right? He delights in them. And we, we talk a lot in, in all sorts of educational circles about lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I think that that's one area in which we've massively failed. Why? Yes. Because we have not present, we have not modeled a sustainable way, a sustainable path in which we can be lifelong learners. And I think that the key to that is learning to enjoy and delight in these works in the way that Cicero, for instance, could do. Like he's a, he's a lawyer. He's got he's a busy guy. We could say, yeah, mm -hmm. he he delights and enjoys. He enjoys these works so much that this is what he does in his free time. Um, and this is this is what the kind of cultivation of taste can can do for you. It, it can open up um, the things that you can enjoy. I I agree so much. I I think that this is really important. What we're you're talking about right now. I just literally this morning did a, a podcast episode with Dr. Steve Burgess and Dr. Matthew Post from UD on um, a character education research study they're doing to help schools and. Um, we talked specifically about intrinsic motivation and one of the elements in their research uh, in, in surveying different schools is to determine if their students at their schools actually enjoy reading uh, like outside of school, like we'll actually just read a book for pleasure or for its beauty or for, you know, what are the motivations for reading outside of school and how many students are actually doing that? And, and we talked about this exact issue because I would argue that if 90% of your students are not reading books for pleasure, then you're doing something wrong in your classical school because most of your students mm -hmm. should actually want to read for pleasure, enjoy reading, enjoy what they're learning and not, you know, at the end of May, beginning of June, be delighted that they're going to be done with school for the summer, right? They shouldn't, they shouldn't be looking forward to school being over. That's not how we should be looking at school. So there's a huge fix right here. And I'm going to go back to this whole progressive model being why we have generations of kids now who aren't becoming adult readers. And you look at like my grandparents and my great grandparents, they were readers. They read, that's what they did. They read books to their children after dinner. And they read mm -hmm. even to their little three and five-year-olds. They were listening to Charles Dickens stories. You know, the whole family was listening. And I, and I, I think there's a huge disconnect in uh, our culture to how important this is and what parents need to understand when they're enrolling a student in a classical school and what kind of school they should be looking for and the classical schools that exist, what kind of things ought they be doing to help make sure that their school is helping these students want to be lifelong learners. Um, yeah. You know, my, my podcast website, the bottom of my homepage, I have the John Ruskin quote 
The final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. They will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven. Education should never end. And then I have a, a, a George McDonald quote at the end of my uh, my signature on my on my emails. That's the same thing, that the end of education should not be repose, should not be about we're done now. <laughs> the end of education, should there should never be an end of education. It should always be going. Um, and, and what I really appreciate about your model of instruction is that it, it should cultivate the loves and cultivate the desire for more of it. Like the more you're exposed to beauty, the more you want it mm-hmm. and the more dissatisfied you are with the things that aren't beautiful. And, and that, and so this way of learning an ancient language should cultivate that real deep love for that which is beautiful and true and good. And, and um, so I really appreciate what you all are doing. And one of my questions I did want to ask you too, is how, what can you offer to parents and, te- and teachers? What, what are you exactly offering? What kind of classes do you have? How does it work? And what ages do you typically start? And there's parents sure. who want to learn these languages. And, and so, so take us through, through what that looks like. Sure, happily, yeah. Um, no, those are those are great quotes. And just the one thing I'd I'd add is I think most parents enrolling their kids in a classical Christian school would agree if you said that uh, you know we're going to support the religious instruction your kids get at home and at church, but we can't replace it. And parents would be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely." Right. Why would your mentality be any different about reading and study? If your kids get home and they see you breaking all 10 commandments, do do you think the odds are good that they're going to grow up pious believers? No, they're not good. You know, Lord works in mysterious ways. They could, Um, but it's not likely. You're not setting that for success. In a similar way, if your kids come home from school and they are watching, they're watching you. Everyone knows this. They're watching their parents. What do their parents do? And they see zero interest in ideas, in books, in abstract studies, as Cicero says. Um, do you think they're likely to grow up to care about any of this? No, they're not likely. They could, but it's not likely. Um, so that that's just one thing to round off. But as for yeah, what we're offering, we've got a bunch of stuff. Um, most relevant is probably our Latin for Kids program, which is a year-long September to June um, program. We've got three big cohorts, elementary, middle, and high school, um, where we're bringing the principles that we've talked about here to bear on uh, education, Latin education for kids, um, it's all online. We're an online school. Um, and we really want kids to enjoy Latin um, because the grammar translation method that most kids experience, I mean, very few kids are experience Latin, and the few who do mostly experience grammar translation, the one thing they generally learn is to hate Latin. So we want to, we really want to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, 
And so we have some really fun tools. Uh, we work really closely with Tim Griffith of Pictodicta in New St. Andrews. He um, has developed some amazing stuff and we get to we get to make use of it and we're super privileged to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, from day one, we're getting kids reading simple Latin stories, speaking, listening to Latin, speaking in Latin, um, and trying to build a really strong foundation upon which uh, a beautiful house of Latin knowledge can be built. Um, so that'd be, that'd be uh, like, if you want your kids to take a class with us, uh, that's the best way. Um, but we teach lots of adults. Um, we have beginner Latin classes uh, that start three times a year. Uh, and Greek too. And ancient Greek um, and old English. And then biblical Hebrew starts less often. Um, but entry level all the way up to, you know, Jonathan's reading the Aeneid right now with some of our advanced Latin students. Mm -hmm. And then also one thing I'll say is that those are the things you'll see if you go on our website, ancientlanguage.com. Um, but we are really here because we want to equip people with the tools for a renaissance to happen. And so uh, we are really flexible. Uh, if there's something we can do to help you, um, we'll we'll try and do it. So email us. Um, we work with classical schools and homeschool co-ops and stuff to create cohorts and classes for them. Um, nice. That, that stuff isn't really on our website. Um, if those people are interested, they should reach out and happy to have a call and talk about Cicero with them for an hour. Just kidding. We don't actually <laughs> make them do that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then we're trying to build curriculum. And so that's a long slog, but we've, yeah. we've got lots of stuff that we're using in our classes. Um, we're not really marketing any of it because it's not ready yet, but yeah. uh, our students are guinea pigs. And so that's, they're very gracious about it. Mm -hmm. This is wonderful. This is great. I'm very excited to, to uh, introduce your program to our listeners, to our Facebook group. Um, no, thanks. The most mm -hmm. common question I keep getting on the Facebook group is about Latin. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I have to have an episode on this with, with a method by which I believe and can get behind and say, this is a good method here. And thanks. so I'm excited about the work you're doing. One of the things that I, on a personal level, would like to know is I, I'm so interested in Greek. And I started studying Greek a little bit on my own. Uh, Dr. Matthew Post was my boss at UD and he bought me some Greek things and he, he was very gracious and kind in helping me. And, and I'll tell you the reason why I wanted to learn Greek was because I read so many books about classical education and, and, you know, books that are written by these people. And, and, and they'll, they'll talk about a Greek word and what it meant. And then they'll talk about a Latin word and what it meant. And I started to notice that it seemed like the Greek words were more beautiful than the Latin words. <laughs> and they had like many more meanings that were more poetic. And I talked to Dr. Post about this. He goes, well, that's because the Greeks were very, very poetic. And the language is so beautiful. So my quandary is why aren't more classical schools wanting in and trying to learn Greek? I feel like great it's question. Important. Yeah. Do you guys have an answer to that? To why? Yeah, I think that there's <clears throat> there's a number of factors. Some of them might be a little bit surprising. Um, 
But the one of the least surprising factors is Dorothy Sayers, of course. One of the one of the reasons is definitely that the kind of founding text of classical education is Dorothy Sayers' Last Tools of Learning, and in there she's she really trumpets Latin as uh, you know this kind of magical formula that's going that. Uh, is the key to the trivium and to learning generally, and you all need to you all need to learn Latin, um, which which is fair on a few levels. One of which is that yeah, Latin indeed was the lingua franca of educated people in Europe for a very long time, for centuries after it ceased to be spoken as a native language. Um, it was still spoken. I mean. Like the publicly funded grammar school that Shakespeare went to as a child, you were beaten if you spoke in English because you had to speak in Latin. Wow. <laughs> uh, so this, it was, yeah, I mean, Latin deserves pride of place, at least historically speaking. Um, uh, and in the Renaissance, the a uh, revival of Latin happened first and Greek Greek uh, was kind of like Paul. It was mm-hmm. born late. Um, and, but I mean, another one is the materials for learning Greek are not available with anything like the availability of Latin materials. Uh-huh. So even for... Uh, direct method, natural method, people like us, um, we feel this in a big way. One of the great masterpieces of language pedagogy is Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Um, that's the book we use in our adult sequence, uh, beginner adult sequence for Latin. It's it's a magnificent book. It's really magnificent, and nothing like it exists for Greek. There have been attempts at direct method, natural method readers. Um, we use, we use Athenase, um, that's one of the attempts, but none of them measure up. And so it's a lot harder, but there's a lot of good reasons to do Greek. I mean, I, it is, it is still surprising to me that there's not more of an emphasis on it, not least because the new Testament is written in Greek. Right. Yeah. Don't you want to be reading the new Testament? That's been a shock to me. That's correct. That's, that's been one of the shocks to me especially in the Christian classical ed movement. Right, right. Um, that's been a shock to me. But I also wonder if it has to do with uh, the classical ed being so focused on the Western canon and Latin is the West and Greek is the East. So maybe there's something in there. <laughs> I don't know. So um, so Ryan and Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on on the episode. This has been a great conversation, very important conversation. I'm going to add uh, your resources into our show notes for our listeners to get in touch with you. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank Look you. Look forward to continuing to hear your wisdom on our Facebook group, too. I'm loving it. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education 
And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven. 